This is all theater. This is all just political theater. Political theater. Political theater. Pure political theater. Theater. Political theater. The nefarious, significant, and protracted political, political, political theater for political theater's sake. I yield back. From Washington, this is Political Theater. Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Dick. Technology increasingly defines modern life, and that is especially so in political campaigns. For all the sophisticated polling models and ways of raising money in politics, a new organization is betting that a very old-school way of doing things will help boost turnout. Vote Tripling was founded after the 2016 election by Robert Reynolds, a behavioral scientist. He wants to boost Democratic turnout, and he thinks it might be as easy as getting people to text their friends and ask them to vote. Senior politics reporter Bridget Bowman has reported on the group and its efforts, and we're going to talk to her and listen to her conversation with Reynolds about vote tripling, how it's going, how it might affect some key races in the battle for congressional majorities in the Senate and House, and just overall, like, wow, what a weird thing, you know, to think that, like, we could just go low-tech in this era of high-tech stuff. So, Bridget, welcome to Political Theater. Thanks, Jason. So let's let's talk about like first of all how'd you how'd you hear about this group? Um, well, somebody that I know that's working with them reached out, um, seeing if I wanted to talk to to Robert, who, as you said, is a behavioral scientist, um, and his kind of switch from science to politics was interesting. And I had also heard that his group, uh, Vote Tripling, was working with a number of Democratic Senate campaigns, which kind of immediately piqued my interest um, since we've been watching a lot of these races really closely. So then I got to talk to Robert a little bit more. And, and like you said, it is kind of a low tech. He, he stressed that they haven't invented any new kind of technology. It's just sort of a new, a newer way of looking at relational organizing and, and turning people out who and engaging people who aren't usually involved in politics. Yeah, let's. Uh, we're going to listen to a little bit of your conversation with him about you know why he founded it, why he felt you know that he wanted to get involved in such a way. After the 2016 election, um, decided I wanted to move into politics and use what we know from behavioral science to help develop um, better and more effective voter turnout tactics. Kind of in response to the idea that Hillary Clinton lost the 2016 election due to low voter turnout. And so what we know from behavioral science research is that the very best way to boost voter turnout is to have someone get reminded by their friend. So also, like, your conversation with him, you got into some of the mechanics of how it does work, and it is it just sounds like... Um, I don't know, like the the way that, like an old phone tree almost. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. um, So this idea of friend-to-friend organizing, Robert acknowledged that this isn't really new to campaigns, that campaigns, it's a typical thing for campaigns to engage volunteers and tell them like, text your friends, text your, tell your friends to tell their friends to to remember to vote. Um, But the thing that Robert has tried to kind of nailed down is how do you get it to not just be volunteers who are reaching out to their friends about this? And, you know, like, I think this is just, I don't know why um, I find this so fascinating, but I've always wondered why more behavioral scientists or shrinks, you know, or, or, you know, psychiatrists and so forth don't get more involved in the business of politics because politics is so 
psychological. Um, I mean, but it, you know, in in most campaigns, right? Like most campaigns, they have polling experts and they have money people and they have get out the vote people, but they rarely have somebody like this who like actually has a, a a background in how and why people behave the way they do. I mean, why don't we see more of these people in politics? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. That's such a like philosophical <laughs> kind of question. Um, I think it is interesting that, um, as Robert mentioned, he was motivated by the 2016 election, which I think as we've been talking to, to candidates who ran in 2018, volunteers um, with campaigns, that election really mobilized a lot of people who weren't initially interested in politics. Uh, so that's bringing scientists interested to to dig, dig into voter turnout is definitely interesting. Yeah, I don't I don't really know why why more of them don't, uh, <laughs> but it is definitely interesting. It it almost reminds me of Moneyball a little bit. Yeah. You know that 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 like there's there's this you know these scientific models that that Billy Bean and and you know was relying on with sabermetrics and Bill James who was you know sort of wrote books about how to you know really determine the value of a player. But it really, I mean, a lot of it, I mean, for for those of you who have read uh, the book by by Michael Lewis or seen the movie with Brad Pitt, I mean, it's, you remember, it's, it's a lot of it's simply just like getting on base. And that's what it really comes down to is like getting people on base. Mm-hmm. And like this thing of just like telling your friends to go vote, it just, I mean, it's almost like too simple, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, which is interesting in what, when I was talking to him about it, trying to figure out like, okay, well, what are you doing here that's new? Because it seemed so obvious that campaigns would be encouraging people to get their friends to vote. Uh, but what he, he was saying was he was really focused on what they call non-activists. So people who don't volunteer, who aren't usually very politically active, um, trying to engage those people. So they have like two different programs, one through texting and one through actually engaging people in person at polling places after they vote. Um, and it involves just telling, asking a voter to say, can you pick three friends and tell them to vote? Uh, and the three is an intentional number. So it's not overwhelmingly too many and that you can then follow up with that voter again via text. Say, do you remember those three friends? Remind them again <laughs> to go vote, which again seems so simple. but was just, in his view, a, a portion of the electorate that campaigns were just missing in this kind of organizing. So... They were a little cagey about exactly how many campaigns they're working with 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 you, but we do know uh, a, a few of the key races that they're they're kind of wading into with this, and and really this could be you know part of like in in very close races this could help you know determine whether somebody wins and also like some of the majorities uh, in in particularly in the Senate. So and and right at the top of the list is roll call's most vulnerable incumbent, Doug Jones. Yeah, so uh, vote tripling said they are working with in 10 Senate races with 13 Democratic state parties, uh, five state caucuses, and in a handful of House races. But you're right, they wouldn't exactly tell us everyone that they were working with. They were only kind of given permission to talk about a few, including the Jones campaign in Alabama. And you're right, I, it's kind of a cliche around elections to to always say elections going to come down to, to turnout because that's obvious. But, of course, right, right. Um, But especially for people like Senator Jones, who needs every single Democrat in, in Alabama to turn out to give him any hope of winning, anything that they can do probably to boost that is something they're going to be interested in. Yeah, I mean, Jones, you know, I mean, he 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 was lucky in uh, his opponent uh, in, in a special election 
where he he didn't have to run against uh, Luther Strange. Remember him? He was the appointed senator who replaced Jeff Sessions until a special election, and Jones got to run against Judge Roy Moore, uh, state Supreme Court justice who um, had a little problem with <laughs> some of his uh, his past behavior. Uh, so Doug Jones doesn't get to run against Roy Moore this time. He's running against Tommy Tuberville. Uh, who has a history of being the Auburn University football coach? Football's kind of a religion, um, and and you know just just real quickly, I mean, like you're, the reasons that we put Jones as the most vulnerable are are not so much the, a, a judgment on him as a person; it's just that he's you know he's he's a Democrat running in an overwhelmingly Republican state when Donald Trump's at the top of the ticket. Yeah, that's right. That is a very that's kind of a good way to sum it up. Uh, there's not a ton of room for. Republicans who will, would might be splitting their votes between President Trump and Senator Jones, uh, and then another like pretty key race, well, key state, uh, if, if you will, uh, that vote tripling is working on is the with the Colorado Democratic Party, and um, I mean Colorado at the presidential level uh, looks like it's it's more a, you know it, it is a trending Democratic state. They have more people registering as as Democrats these days. Uh, they have a Democratic governor. Uh, they're, you know, they, they did, the Democrats did really well in the congressional elections at the House level in 2018. And Cory Gardner, uh, who is running for re-election as a Republican senator, he is also on our roll call, most vulnerable senators. Let's talk about uh, how, you know, how close that race may be. And, and, and again, just that, you know, if, if it comes down to, if it's a close race and a few extra people vote because of vote tripling or something like that, that could determine this race. Let's talk about Gardner's race. Yeah. So Senator Gardner is also looking really vulnerable, kind of similar to Jones, where the partisan dynamics of the state are a problem, not as dramatic as Alabama, uh, but Colorado is certainly trending in Democrats' direction. Uh, they had Democrats sweep the statewide offices in 2018 had success down the ballot too. Um, and the problem for Senator Gardner is that there are a good chunk of Colorado voters who aren't registered with any or either party. And those folks have been really trending towards Democrats in large part out of a rejection of President Trump. Um, so if this, in some polling, this is looking like it might not be particularly close, although Republicans do think Senator Gardner, who you know is really energetic, um, is a kind of a dynamic candidate. They think he's a, a good incumbent, but just the partisan dynamics of the state might take over there. And and his opponent, John Hickenlooper, is known to voters. I mean, he's uh, you know he was a he was the two term governor uh, in in Colorado. He left with very high approval ratings. He ran for president. He got a little bit of uh, he didn't do all that well in presidential. Uh, p- polling for the Democratic nomination, but he did get his name out there nationally. He's also the former mayor of Denver, and before all that, um, he he brewed beer. So I mean, he's automatically popular. <laughs> so he's like, you know, as good as a, a candidate as Gardner is, and, and he is, and he's a you know he is a, by all accounts a nice guy. Uh, mm-hmm. If you've ever talked to him, Hickenlooper is is just as <laughs> just as engaging and just as good a candidate, and in a situation like this where it probably won't be that close at the presidential level Gardner's kind of swimming against the tide it's also like let's let's talk just a little bit about another race in in Colorado I mean like this is sort of on the fringe uh because um Scott Tipton who's a Republican incumbent lost in his primary to uh and you'll have to help me with the name is Lauren uh Lauren Bobert 
Bobert. Bobert. Yeah. Bobert. Cool. Sorry, uh, <laughs> okay. Lauren Bobert, who uh, has said some nice things about QAnon, uh, and normally this would not be on the radar because it's a fairly heavily Republican district, but um, her candidacy has Democrats thinking that in an they may have an outside shot with their candidate Diane Mitch Bush. Uh, in in knocking her off, and and again in close races, like every little turnout thing helps. Like l- let's just t- talk a teeny bit about that race because I know we have so many to cover. But like that's just kind of like just a wild kind of race, isn't it? Yeah, that that is one of those races that we at the beginning of the beginning of the cycle probably wouldn't have expected to be watching as closely as we will be. Uh, outside groups on both sides have, have been spending in this race. Uh, but this is a district that President Trump carried by 12 points in 2016. So it's an, an uphill climb for any Democrat, but Democrats are fairly confident that Boebert is such a problematic nominee on the Republican side that they could have a good shot at this district. And and finally, let's let's talk a little bit about another another place where we know that their um, vote tripling is is working, and that's in Minnesota. They're um, they've signed on with Tina Smith, uh, Tina Smith's campaign. She's a, a um, incumbent senator. I mean, she's heavily favored to win her race. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not so much where that that she'll get this great you know benefit, or this could be the deciding factor in her race. But there are there's so much going on in Minnesota. Um, I know um, the team politics at Roll Call will have a nice uh, set of stories next week uh, about some of the the House races there, and and also President Trump thinks he can compete there. The polls, you know, suggest maybe 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 not. But let's talk about some of those down ballot races that could also help out if you because if you're if you're helping a statewide candidate like Tina Smith out to try to boost Democrats, it could have an effect on on a couple of races, including Colin Peterson, who's again on the roll call most vulnerable list of House incumbents. That's right. Yeah, Minnesota is really interesting. And President Trump only lost Minnesota by just under two points in 2016, which is pretty close. Um, yeah. And so it's not clear how close it'll be this time around. But there are, like you said, a number of House races uh, that both parties are targeting. Uh, Democrats flipped a few seats here in 2018. Republicans also flipped a few seats here in 2018. And in in this state, you see kind of broader dynamics playing out where the suburban districts are trending in Democrats' direction, the more rural districts like Colin Peterson's district, like you mentioned, which the president carried by around 30 points in 2016, a very rural part of the state uh, that's moving towards Republicans. Um, So this will be definitely a state to watch at the House level. And there was this, I mean, and I know that uh, your your colleague Kate Ackley uh, has has a lot of responsibilities for Minnesota, Mm -hmm. um, but like the, you know, there was this this strange thing (laughs) happened where uh, in in Angie Craig's district, in the the second district, a candidate, not the Republican candidate, not her Republican opponent, but a a, a candidate for, I think, like the cannabis, legalized cannabis campaign or something like that, it was like a pro-marijuana party, died, Mm -hmm. you know, somewhat suddenly, and and state election officials said that they were going to cancel the election. <laughs> and yeah. then and then they you know the 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 Angie Craig who's a democratic incumbent she won the the she flipped a seat uh over Jason Lewis uh in uh in 2018. Um she sued and they reinstated the election but it is just this kind of wild ride. Uh I mean and she she doesn't she looks like she's 
heavily kind of favored at the, at this point, or not heavily favored. It is tilting Democratic, I believe, uh, is, right. is, is what Nathan Gonzalez, our colleague at Inside Elections, has. But I mean, just there, there's just so much going on that in in Minnesota, it's it's hard to it's hard to not think like, man. Any any one text or whatever might have like a <laughs> like a, a weird effect. It could have the opposite effect too. People might get turned off and say like, "Well, you know, I'm gonna do I'm gonna do whatever I want." <laughs> <laughs> right, which is kind of um, vote tripling's whole mission was they saw in 2016 that Hillary Clinton lost in in some pretty close races in some of these midwestern states. Uh, so you know, like you said, any little bit can maybe make that difference and. They're hoping to make the difference in a number of these states, but you can never really pinpoint what exactly it was maybe that that moves turnout, but I'm sure they're going to be watching their their various uh, efforts pretty closely to see what kind of impact they could have. Um, finally, I, f- I feel like we have to talk about the... Um the the gorilla in the in the country in the world, which is COVID nineteen. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, some of uh, you know, as, as as Robert Reynolds explained, and as, as you've mentioned too, um, the some of this depends on on being at a polling station and approaching people and asking, you know, like them face to face, and how has COVID, how has, you know, social distancing and so many of the, you know, the, the ways our lives have changed because of the pandemic, has that affected, you know, like their, their operations and like, you know, just this face-to-face con- plan on face-to-face contact? It has. And so part of the other part of their program involves approaching voters after they have voted, which is different than campaigns usually approach people before they go in the polling place to kind of make a last-ditch argument uh, to support their candidate. But vote tripling trains campaigns to have their volunteers ask people when they are leaving the polling place, hey, can you text three friends and remind them to vote? Um, And they're looking at the kind of behavioral science of it. Their theory is that uh, voters are really exiting the polling place are excited to have voted and are feeling good and, and want to do something to help. And so that can be pretty effective when you ask people when they're in that mindset. But of course, in in COVID, it's tougher to approach people in person. Um, so Robert said that they are, you know, following social distancing guidelines, making sh- telling campaigns, like making sure everyone has PPE, um, having a no mask, no ask policy, meaning volunteers should not ask it. But approach anyone who isn't wearing a face mask. Um, and he did also, I also asked him because there are going to be fewer people voting in person on election day than there normally are. There's, we're already seeing millions of people have, have cast ballots early in person or by mail. And, um, but he didn't see that as a huge problem. He actually said it could make their efforts more efficient. There's one thing that makes this election um, more favorable for polling place tripling, which is in a typical election, you have polling places scattered all over the place. Uh, this year, you have a high, a smaller number of polling places all concentrated in a couple areas on average. And so you need a lot fewer volunteers to do this um, and to do it well. You just send them to the handful of places that are going to be very high traffic on election day. So there's fewer total votes that can be won, but for the votes that can be won, it's a lot more straightforward to do it. So it's affecting in different ways, like we've seen with campaigns. Every aspect of campaigning has been impacted by this pandemic, and turnout is definitely one of them. 
Well, I, I guess if I if I start getting a lot of texts uh, from now until election day, <laughs> I, I know who to blame. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll blame you first, Bridget, and, okay. then, and then and then I'll blame Robert Reynolds uh, in, in case of this. Um, well, uh, you know, thanks, you know, thanks for like bringing you know like this this story up because I, I, you know, it at a certain point in all campaigns, you know, you, we we focus on polling, we focus on the horse race, we focus on money and so forth, and so it's kind of I I really dig getting the opportunity to talk about something that's a little offbeat and and again like why why every campaign you know every party every campaign doesn't have some sort of fleeting uh connection to a behavioral scientist i mean who knows maybe that'll maybe that's what'll change uh in in coming years so thanks for thanks for doing the story bridget sure thanks for having me 